0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson.
1: Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today we'll discuss medical cannabis for pain management with geriatric pharmacist Andy Donald. We'll learn what to do if you're struggling with low desire with sex therapist Michelle Fischler. We'll talk about hydration for longevity with researcher David Nelson. And lastly, we'll find out about slow-down self-care with home decor expert Christy Miller. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot of healthy headlines. Whether you call them comfort foods, highly processed foods, junk foods, empty calories, or just some of North America's favorite foods and drinks, about 13% of the people age 50 to 80 have an unhealthy relationship with them, according to a new poll conducted at the University of Michigan. The percentage is much higher among women than men, especially women in their 50s and early 60s. It was also higher in older adults who say they are overweight, lonely, or in fair or poor physical or mental health. For those enjoying the new show, The Last of Us, you might be interested that there's some scary science behind it. Pathogenic fungi are notorious killers of immune-compromised people, but for the most part, healthy people have not had to worry about them, and the vast majority of the planet's potentially pathogenic fungi don't do well in the heat of our bodies. But all of that may be about to change. A new study out of Duke University School of Medicine finds that raised temperatures cause a pathogenic fungus known as Cryptococcus denioformans to turn its adaptive responses into overdrive. This increases its number of genetic changes, some of which may presumably lead to higher heat resistance, and others perhaps towards greater disease-causing potential. A new biomaterial developed by researchers at the University of California, San Diego, that can be injected intravenously, reduces inflammation in tissue, and promotes cell and tissue repair. The biomaterial was tested and proven effective in treating tissue damage caused by heart attacks in both rodent and large animal models. There are an estimated 785,000 new heart attack cases in the United States each year, and there's no established treatment for repairing the resulting damage to cardiac tissue. After a heart attack, scar tissue develops, which diminishes muscle function and can lead to congestive heart failure. This new biomaterial treatment can be administered immediately after a heart attack. It can be infused into a blood vessel in the heart at the same time as other treatments, such as angioplasty or a stent, or injected intravenously. And the study on the safety and efficacy of the biomaterial in human subjects could start within one or two years. That was your Tonic Quick Shot. I'll be joined by Andy Donald in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer Store? Powered by The Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit ZoomerStore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Andy Donald is a certified geriatric pharmacist and president of the Health Depot Pharmacy. His passion to help patients and deliver personalized services led him to launch the Health Depot, Canada's only online clinical pharmacy. Patient care is Andy's number one priority. He and his pharmacy team are specialists in supporting adults with chronic conditions such as diabetes and cardiovascular disease. He's active in his profession, serving on several committees including the Alzheimer's Society of Ontario's Ontario Dementia Care Alliance, and he is the Prescribe It Pharmacy Ambassador for Canada Health Infoway. Welcome back to the show, Andy. How are you?
2: Much better. Thanks, Jamie. It's been uh, it's been a little bit. Glad to be back.
1: Yeah, glad to have you back. It's too late to wish you happy new year, so I'll just wish you continued health in the new year. Okay?
2: Sounds good. Thanks. The same to you too.
1: Thanks. <laughs> so we've been talking about cannabis and last time we talked about cannabis and sleep but we're going to go in a different direction and talk about pain. So, okay. I think we should start with pain itself. What makes pain so challenging to treat?
2: Well, it's it's very challenging because there's both there's many different types of pain. It's both sensory and emotional. And uh, with the different types, there's different treatments. So it's difficult. You have to kind of pay attention to the pain. But not only that, it is very subjective to the individual. It's something that healthcare professionals can't really see. So it's, it's very challenging because you have to nail down the source, the type of pain, and that can help with the treatment.
1: Yeah. And sometimes pain is displaced, right? Like a lay person may not be able to tell whether it's muscle pain, joint pain, bone pain, bruising. Like there's so many sources of pain and we we just may not know what it is, right?
2: Absolutely. So that's why it's tricky. You first have to find out what is causing the pain. Pain is usually, it starts off being a warning that something's damaged in your body. Right. And trying to find out what's damaged and what's the source of the pain is very important. But over time, That short-term pain can turn into long-term pain that may not even have some sort of damage-related cue or signal.
1: I think you said pain is subjective. We all experience pain differently. What might be a nine out of ten for me might only be a six or seven out of ten for you in terms of you know intensity or frequency or whatever. Absolutely. Uh, So pain can become chronic. What does that mean and how is that kind of pain treated differently?
2: Yeah. I mean, so first of all, to understand chronic pain, I guess you have to know the the short-term or acute pain, right? Yeah. So as we mentioned, like pain, short-term pain, acute pain, warns that there's damage that occurred, right? And it typically goes away when the injury heals. Examples of that are broken bones, twisted ankles, or cuts. Chronic pain, on the other hand, lasts for longer than three months, and it continues well after the injury has healed, This is what we see in a lot of chronic conditions such as arthritis, which is the most common form of pain for individuals over the age of 65, lower back pain, and nerve pain.
1: Now that we know what chronic pain is, how is it treated differently?
2: Uh, How is it treated differently? So that's where... You know, it depends if it's nerve pain, there's medications and things that can treat nerve pain. If it's what we call, um, if it's like a, a twisted ankle or a broken bone, there's types of medications that can treat that as well. But there's always like, there's lifestyle and changes that helps a little bit. But often with pain, it's one of the conditions, unfortunately, compared to sleep, as we talked about and other, uh, that lifestyle doesn't help as much, that often, sometimes, medications that, can, that are specific for the type of pain you have might be warranted for sure.
1: Okay. Where does neuropathic pain fit into this picture that we're painting?
2: Yeah, neuropathic is nerve pain, right? So it's a little different from, yeah, like a, you know, torn muscle, broken bone. It just happens to be that it's more the nerves that have been damaged and it causes the nerves to misfire. It's often, it's a little different from the throbbing pain or whatnot. It's usually a burning or shooting pain, a tingling sensation. Examples of that are shingles, diabetic neuropathy, or fibromyalgia, which actually, believe it or not, for a long time, people said they have fibromyalgia, people thought it was in their head because they couldn't really see it. But it's been shown now that you have micro tears in your nerves that are causing them to misfire and send that pain signal all the time. So up to your brain for you to experience
1: the pain. Okay. So pain pathways, what does that mean exactly?
2: So that's kind of the route you get. Like our body has nerves for different functions, right? All over our body. Nerves help fire, our muscles uh, fire, but then we have pain nerves all over our body. So if you feel like you burnt your finger, how does that, How do we feel that pain? It goes up from one nerve, a pain nerve, to a bigger nerve as it gets closer and closer to our, our torso, and then up to our brain. And then in our brain is where we experience the pain sensation. And in normal ways, that our body deals with the pain. We actually our body then releases painkillers, our own natural painkillers, which are endogenous painkillers uh, inside your own body, like endorphins and capalins and, ble- and opioid peptides. Our body actually releases own opioid peptides to block out the pain.
1: Okay. Is pain treated differently depending on how old we are?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, yes. Unfortunately, pain is a little more severe as we get older for a couple of different reasons. The aging process, there's two main things that affects our sensation of pain that can make it worse. The first one is an increased pain threshold. As we get older, uh, that means we lose the sensitivity to lower levels of pain. So we have less nerves, less pain receptors in our body. Things become a little bit less as we age. And because of that, we don't notice pain until there's a little bit more damage has occurred. So the damage can be a little more severe. Then we start feeling pain. And on the flip side, you know, besides not noticing low levels of pain, we have less ability to block the pain once we feel it. So we have less of those, remember I said those endogenous inside your own body, endorphins and confalins and opioid peptides. So once we do experience pain, when more damage has occurred, we have a tougher time in blocking it out.
1: Okay. What happens if you ignore pain or leave it untreated?
2: So it's, and unfortunately, can sensitize our neurons, which means that we can feel more pain if we don't listen to it. The analogy I like to use for this is people understand this is a weightlifter, right? The more weight you lift, the stronger your muscles will get. The same kind of thing happens for our pain receptors. So if they repeatedly fire, if they're constantly firing and uh, causing pain, Our pain nerves can remodel and become stronger, stronger connections, and then as a result, we can have an exaggerated or worsening pain sensation for the same injury. It can get worse over time.
1: Okay, so in light of all this, this picture that you've painted of of pain getting worse as we're getting older and and sort of being uh, desensitized to pain yet oversensitized to pain in the same time, what sort of treatments are available? How do we deal with this pain?
2: Yeah. So there's a lot of different treatments, right? So there's a lot of consequences if we don't treat the pain for starters, right? right yeah. Like it's, it relates to, you know, if you have pain, you don't get much sleep. There's a pain sleep psych, uh, depression cycle that if you, if you have a lot of pain, you can't get sleep. And if you can't get sleep, it leads to you, you're worsening a mental state and you can get depression and, then, and it actually can cycle you downwards. So then for the treatments of pain, though, it's all dependent on what is the pain, right? You have to identify that first. And then unfortunately, too, it's being a very subjective. The treatments kind of depend on you being able to coexist and ha- maintain a quality of life. So pain doesn't limit your ability to go out and walk or your ability to live your normal life the way you want to. And that's why they often have pain skills. you probably on a, a scale of zero to 10. How right. do you feel? Yeah. People can usually function with mild pain, you know, like a two or a three, but even moderate to severe pain can stop your ability to function on a daily basis and, and limit you wanting to go out and do things or wanting to be social. And that can have a profound impact on your quality of life. So the treatments is trying to get it so pain can be manageable in the background and very minimal so it doesn't stop you being who you want to do and what you want to do. So there's a lot of treatments. Uh, as I mentioned, there's some over the, the non-farms, right? Yep. Exercise. So for instance, we mentioned that arthritis, osteoarthritis is by far the most common type of pain that we experience in our later years. And if that causes you pain in your knees, for instance, in knees and hips, if you don't exercise and you don't get out and strengthen those muscles, your muscles get weaker. And because your muscles have gotten weaker, Now there's even more pressure and weight on that joint causing even more pain. It can cause a downward spiral. So that's why a a simple treatment, if you have osteoarthritis, for instance, is exercise. 30 minutes of exercise three to four times a week, going for walks, something as simple as a walk. And if walk's too painful, activity in the pool, right? There's a lot of different things you can do to try to strengthen the muscles around the joints causing you pain. That's where physical therapy and things like that can help. But then when it comes down, if that still is too severe and a lot of the, you know, massage, heat and cold therapy, things like that is not effective, then definitely if you're still experiencing too much pain, then there's medications that can be given to help with pain. Right. Keeping in mind, as we always say, there's a positive and a negative every medication you experience, right? It can help you, but limiting the pain, but there also can be side effects and, and interactions with the other meds. You have to keep in mind of that. But there's a lot of different types of meds you can take. For instance, like there's topical that kind of numb the area. Right. The idea with all topicals and that you've heard of lidocaine, capsaicin, like Voltaren, a lot of different, even like Rub A535. Yep. What those do is they overload your, they don't actually fix the problem that's causing the pain. They overload your pain receptors by other causing a cooling or hot sensation that drowns out the pain is what it does. And then there's a lot of other mild, there's over-the-counter meds, nerve pain meds. So if you have nerve pain, there's medications specifically designed to help with the nerve pain. Mm-hmm. And then there's even, yeah, cannabinoids. We talked about that last session that right. cannabis can help out as well and opioids. So there's a lot of different types of tra- uh, treatment pain, but it's very interesting. Kind of tying to our last talk about Sleem with cannabis, what do you think is um, doctor's first line of therapy for medications they go to if someone's experienced chronic pain? What would your answer be?
1: I would think maybe aspirin or Tylenol or something like that.
2: Yeah, Tylenol um, is the first-line therapy. It's usually the safest, especially to take for long-term. The main thing you need to worry about with Tylenol is not taking too much Tylenol because it can be bad for your liver, particularly if you drink alcohol. It makes it even much, much worse for your liver. See, there's certain thresholds that you need to stay below. But believe it or not, they didn't even know how Tylenol worked in the body until 2017, 2018. (laughs) They knew that before you took it, it just helped the pain go away. Right. But they figured in 2017, 2018, that the safest type of medication for pain that doctors always go to, first, binds to cannabinoid receptor one in the body, both in the brain and the peripheral system. What else do you think binds to cannabinoid receptor one in the body?
1: I'm going to go with cannabis. <laughs> yes,
2: cannabis, and, and cannabis actually binds to receptor one and two. Right. Showing that cannabis is actually very, very safe for helping to treat pain. But, you know, what you, the main thing is what we mentioned with the sleep talk is that if you go on that, then it can affect your other medications. And the side effects you can get can affect your other medications in your body. And those, that's why you need to have, if you're going to go on it, you need to engage your doctor and your pharmacist and find out the, what the right doses are for you. But then to, it might have to adjust some of your other medications you're taking, too.
1: So for people who are experiencing arthritis and it's chronic... Is cannabis a solution, or are there other medications that it interacts with? So typically, it's not a good choice for arthritis.
2: Well, arthritis, the entry level, the safest is always Tylenol because Tylenol doesn't have any interactions as well, right? So, and it's as long as you're not taking, you have to be careful. I mean, there's Tylenol, acetaminophen, in all almost all over the counter products so it's like acetaminophen from, from everything you're taking you need to pay attention to but cannabis is another solution and it's uh it's it suggests that it even can work better but you do it has that caveat and that you have to be careful with the effects of what it can do with other medications in your body too and we're talking about the the terpenes and the cannabinoids that really being what helps you out there but it's something that's missed often, too, with over-the-counter meds, is sometimes people take Advil chronically for chronic pain, right? Like, yep. taking it every day. Whereas you have to be careful with that. Any anti-inflammatory, they're called NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. So that's Advil, which is ibuprofen, naproxen, aspirin, diclofenac, and meloxicam, which are more prescriptions. They are meant more for short-term. When you have swelling, short-term, because the long-term implications of those drugs, you have to be careful, they can... Eat away protective coatings in your stomach and yeah. your arteries. They can cause issues like ulcers. They can affect and they can hurt your kidneys over a long period of time. They can raise your blood pressure. If you're taking an anti-inflammatory long term, and you have high blood pressure, a lot of times it's because of the anti-inflammatory. It causes you to retain more water and sodium, increasing pressure in your in your blood pressure. And so it's one of those ones that, again, it is less, it's more used for short-term. And if you take a, an anti-inflammatory, you're supposed to take a stomach acid drug to protect your stomach, but then it can still have issues on your blood pressure and kidneys long-term. So that's why it's always better to start with the Tylenol chronically. But you're right. And if that's not enough, you've got to look at, like, you know, are you being controlled for your pain? And if not, then there's things that you can do. You have to explore other options to step up to, such as, you know, cannabis is looking like a very good option to help people who are in more severe pain. As there's studies that show, uh, even just for pain, an older adult study, very, very interestingly, mentioned that, you know, older adults, only 4.9% of them reported an adverse event by taking a cannabinoid. And that went down to 1% in six months. Like, so you can very well tolerate the side effects. If you are experiencing side effects on cannabinoids, usually that's because your other medications in your body haven't been adjusted. So that's something to really pay attention to. But yeah, three-quarters of the individuals in the study had improvements in pain interference, 63% improving sleep because you know then, as we mentioned, if you have pain, it's tough for you to get sleep. And three-quarters uh, had overall improvements in their quality of life. And 63% of them had reduction in the opioid use, which is very important because opioids... You know, a lot of people are crapping on, they are bad. They can have a lot of bad side effects. But if you're in severe pain, sometimes for cancer pain, severe bone pain and stuff, they're really sometimes the only option. But they should always be used as a last resort when you've tried all the other alternatives because they can definitely, if you have nerve pain or some mild pain, if you're to take an opioid, it's kind of like... Killing a, instead of killing a fly with a fly swatter, it's like dropping a car on the fly, right? It can be a little over-excessive. So Ooh. that's where talking to your doctor and your pharmacist team to find out what's the best in helping you out. We should try doing pain uh, therapy in a stepwise approach.
1: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jamie. That was Andy Donald. For more discussions and articles about health and wellness, Be sure to visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll discuss low desire on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit omegaalphainc.com. Are you stressed out, feeling down, having trouble sleeping? New Roots Herbal offers natural supplements to help take the edge off, relax, enhance your mood, and sleep better. Discover De-Stress, Merry Mind Omega, and Sleep 8. Natural ingredients and guaranteed purity for a better day and a restful night. Find these and other New Roots Herbal products exclusively at quality health food stores. And for more information, visit newrootsherbal.com. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label.
0: Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson.
1: Michelle Fischler is a certified sex therapist and the host of the Get Some podcast. Michelle's vision is to inspire people to own who they are as sexual beings, one conversation at a time causing sexual transformation across cultures, belief systems, and lifestyles. You can find her at michellefishler.ca or follow her on Instagram at podcast. Welcome to the show. How are you?
3: Thank you for having me. I'm great. Thank you.
1: So I have been with my wife since she's 18 and I'm 20. And right now I'm 56. So it's been a long time.
3: Congratulations. Yeah, not
1: bad, huh? And... For some couples who've been together a long time, and I'm not saying that this is us, you know, everybody has their peaks and valleys. And over time, sort of people go through lulls in desire. Yes. So how common is low desire?
3: I would say that low desire is one of the main reasons that people come in to see me when it comes to working with couples. And out of those people that say the main concern is desire If you investigate it a little bit further, it actually turns out that I would say more than half of those couples, it's less about low desire and more about not really being interested in the sex that they're currently having.
1: Okay, so that's not to say they're not interested in sex. It's about maybe it's, as you said, the sex they're having. So it could be that things haven't changed in a while or they want to try something new or, or whatever, right?
3: Yeah, like I think that a good way of knowing whether or not you're experiencing low desire is I ask this question, which is do you self-pleasure or masturbate or whatever you want to call it, right? right. If somebody's saying I have low desire, but they're self-pleasuring like they normally would, right. then I think, okay, maybe this is less about low desire and more about the kind of sex that the two of you are having.
1: So what causes low desire then? Is it just familiarity? Is it a rut? Is it like a routine? Like what are some of the factors?
3: Yeah. So if we're talking about clear, low desire, yeah. generally there's a few factors. There are shame is a big one. Yeah. There are medical issues that might come up. If somebody's experienced depression, and let's say they're on an antidepressant, that can affect desire. If they're going through the menopause transition, that's a big one. If there are problems going on in the relationship, that can be a real put the brakes on desire. Sure.
1: So that's sort of the cause of low desire and the fact of low desire. But what happens when there is low desire in a relationship? Like, uh, like it seems maybe we're asking an obvious question, but...
3: No, it's a great question. When you're working with a couple where there is a desire discrepancy, it's good to look at this in having a conversation about good enough sex. What is a way that the two of you can work together as a really good sexual team to come up with a plan where sex feels good enough in your relationship, where it's not creating any concerns, where you're not always thinking about it, where it doesn't take up so much emotional energy in the relationship. So having the goal of, you know, swinging from chandeliers because your sex is so great, that might not be the goal that's going to be a shared goal for the both of you. And it's really about negotiating.
1: I guess negotiating and communicating, right?
3: Negotiating and communicating and understanding each other's experiences and trying to do what you can in terms of creating trust, creating a connection between the two of you where you feel like you're working together as a team. Oftentimes, people will come in and think that they're the problem because they're the one in the relationship with lower desire, but actually... It's a couple concern. It's something that both people have to come together and work through together to manage this successfully.
1: So what are some of the things that couples can do if they're inclined to improve things? How do you fix the discrepancy in desire?
3: Yeah, I would first think about what is your life looking like outside of the bedroom, right? If what we know can be helpful for couples in terms of increasing sexual satisfaction, is if you want to have fun in the bedroom, you have to be able to have fun outside of the bedroom. So looking at your life, looking at new experiences that the two of you are having, they actually don't necessarily have to be these like crazy fun experiences, even difficult experiences for couples where they're working together can really foster that connection because connection is really important when it comes to sex because it's, Very vulnerable. Sex is one of the most vulnerable places that people go when it comes to relationships. And so creating connection and trust and feeling safe outside of the bedroom is going to allow you to be more open to seeing what happens inside of the bedroom and trying things out. Also communicating about individually what a great sexual experience would look like for you. So for someone, one person, it might be, okay, when we're going to have sex, we run up to the bedroom and we take off all of our clothes where the other person may need more than that. They may need to hang out during the day. They may need to have deeper, more meaningful conversations. Maybe they want to go out for dinner. Maybe to have a really great sexual experience. It's not going to happen in the home. Maybe it's to go somewhere else, rent a hotel room. It's really about being creative and working with what works for the both of you and what works with both of your individual desires.
1: So when people are looking for creativity, are you giving them creative ideas? Or like, is it more meaningful if they come up with the creative ideas? Or is it some people just need that little push and shove? Because not everybody is as creative as other people, right? That is
3: a really great question because as a sex therapist, it's not me necessarily coming up with all these different creative ideas. The couple is the expert in the relationship they know what works for them right. and so what we tend to do is we reflect back on the earlier times in their relationship what did they enjoy doing together right. right what was it that really helped to build that desire in the relationship and so you take these clues from those memories and you start to think about okay so these are things that the two of you used to do back in the day, what are some ways that you might be able to incorporate some of those adventures now?
1: But people change though, don't they? I I mean, this is like a family joke. Are people always the same or or are they ever evolving? Right. I, I mean, I would think that, you know, these problems, if they didn't persist when people were together, but younger, maybe they're happening now because people are different or there's different impacts on their lives. Right.
3: Yeah, I think people are always changing as is their relationship to sex and even what their sex looks like and how they have sex might be different now because of either aging or whatever they're going through. Maybe it's an illness, right? Maybe it's medications. And so you really need to work with changes, right? You need to work with what you have. And so it used to be that people had very limited ideas of what sex is. Right. And so my work is to broaden that idea, getting away from the whole penis and vagina intercourse. Right. And expanding the repertoire. Thinking about other ways of experiencing pleasure that feels satisfying. And maybe it ends in having a great sexual experience that it also includes an orgasm or also includes an erection, and maybe it doesn't. So you change the where you want to land. So you look at sex as more than a journey versus a destination.
1: How do you feel about medications that might affect desire in a positive way? Are you pro or anti? Are you all natural? Or do you think anything that helps you work should should be explored?
3: Look, There is no good evidence to show that there is any medication out there that is going to help with desire specifically. Desire is very complicated in that there's a number of different ways that you need to come at it to actually see changes, positive changes. For example, if somebody who has a penis decides that they're going to take Viagra, if they are so stressed out... Yeah. about the sexual experience, that Viagra is not going to do anything.
1: Well, it'll do something.
3: But it- <laughs> well, it might. But I have worked with people who have taken Viagra yeah. and still have not been able to get an erection because really? they are terrified, panicked that they're going to lose their erection. It becomes very focused on the erection versus the experience, right? So if somebody is taking some kind of medication that they think is helpful with them like for their desire yeah. all the power to you okay. but I think people should be very cautious when they are hearing things on social media about this miracle drug that is going to change their relationship with desire because what ends up by happening sometimes is people take those drugs yeah. and then it doesn't work right? and then they feel completely hopeless
1: yeah we don't want that
3: No, we don't want that. And what's great is when I see those people that we're able then to create a new narrative where there are way many more options out there that they can pull from. It doesn't have to be so limited.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
3: You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun.
1: For more discussions and articles about health and wellness, be sure to visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss hydration for longevity on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. I'd like to give a shout-out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Are you stressed out, feeling down, having trouble sleeping? New Roots Herbal offers natural supplements to help take the edge off, relax, enhance your mood, and sleep better. Discover De Stress, Merry Mind Omega, and Sleep 8. Natural ingredients and guaranteed purity for a better day and a restful night find these and other New Roots Herbal products exclusively at quality health food stores. And for more information, visit newrootsherbal.com. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label.
0: Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson.
1: David Nelson is a fellow at In Vivo Planetary Health, a part of the NOVA Institute for Health of People, Places and Planet located in Baltimore, Maryland. He attended the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, is a health food retail and wellness service business owner. He's written numerous academic articles and his latest establishes the importance of the acid alkaline balance in the foods we eat. He also lives in Woodstock with his family. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you?
4: Not too bad, Jamie. Thanks for having me back. Always love doing these.
1: So last time we spoke, we were talking about recent science findings about exercise, and you promised us this time we're going to do a little bit of an offshoot on that, and, and that is the importance of hydration. So there was a very big study which just came out at the end of 2022, but before we talk about the details of that study, maybe you can first talk about why water is important in the first place.
4: Yeah, I mean, that's a great way to start because I think, again we're always told drink more water 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 but i don't think people really recognize what water does in the body so i'm just going to go through a couple things like water helps us to be temperature regulated so Mm -hmm. it resists changes in temperature and we're you know we're about 60 percent water so that's a good thing water is a medium of exchange which means that water has these polarized ends on it so if you look at the h2o molecule two hydrogens and one oxygen There's polarity in there, and that allows water to interact with a lot of other molecules. So it becomes the medium of exchange. Think of it as the soup inside of your body. Like you have to have a liquid to hold all the other things as they interact with one another, and that's cells and molecules and different immune function. And then water also helps us to excrete waste, and that's urination. So your bladder holds the byproducts of metabolism and other things that you do for processing, and your bowels. Because fiber holds water in the gut, and that's really important to note. So if you're dehydrated, you're not actually going to be detoxifying as well either. And one last thing, it turns out that sweating is actually important. And so exercise, like we talked about before, you work up a sweat, and it turns out that sweat can do a few things for you too, and it's also a medium of detoxification. So water does so many things in the body, and if you're deficient in drinking enough water, There are some complications for that. One, you're just not going to feel your best. That's definitely one of the things.
1: Mm -hmm. So this may seem like a silly question. There's water and then there's water. So what are the types (laughs) of water that people drink? Yeah,
4: I think that there, you know, I love bottled water because... You know, it's been filtered and purified and other stuff that's in there. But I also don't like bottled water because the environmental impact, everybody knows that We can't consume plastic yep. the way that we've been consuming it, you know, and it can't be ubiquitous all over the place. It just doesn't make any sense. So the question then is, well, what water is okay to drink? Well, you can get filtering things for water. You can put tap water in there. And I just want to talk about tap water really quick. Mm-hmm. Tap water is okay to drink, but there is a caveat here that's brand new came out six weeks ago. So that would be late 2022. So it was about November. And what they found out was this fluoridation of water. Okay. And this is a controversial topic. I'm just telling you what the science says. The science showed that fluoride in your water is a microbiome disruptor. So this changes the conversation about fluoride. Yes, it helps calcium deposition and enamel in our teeth. That's one of the reasons we put fluoride in water in in the first place. But there are some troubling things about fluoride that are coming out about the microbiome. So I just want to throw that out there Okay. about tap water. If you have fluoride in your tap water, you likely need a filter that can take that out, and then you can drink the tap water. That's where I'm going with that. So what types of water to drink? Really, every once in a while, you do need to go get a bottle of mineral water. And you're looking for... On the side of mineral water, it'll tell you the dissolved solids. That's in parts per million. So I think San Pellegrino, if I remember correctly, is around 130 parts per million. And those dissolved solids are actually a bunch of different electrolytes that help you balance a whole bunch of things. And it turns out that it's really important if you're eating a lot of salt in your diet or you have a high sodium load, those other electrolytes help you to balance it out. So yes, you can drink tap water, but it's best to drink the best water that you can get your hands on. So if you can filter fluoridated water and get some of that fluoride out, it would be a really good idea because it looks like it might create some dysbiosis in some people.
1: Okay. Let's double back to the big study that came out at the end of 2022. So tell us a little bit about that.
4: Okay. First of all, a lot of studies that are done have less than 200 people in them. Okay. So your listeners to understand how big a deal this was, this study has 15,752 participants. And those participants were 45 to 66 years old, and there was a 25-year follow-up on this trial. Wow! So okay. this is profoundly, this looks legit. Mm-hmm. And what they found was that hydration status, and they measured that based on the, the sodium load, measured in millimoles per liter, <laughs> the higher the sodium load, and the number was over 142, I think it was, 142 millimoles per liter, you greatly increased biological aging. And this is super important. So it meant that as soon as that sodium load goes above 142 and it stays there for a longer period of time, you will start to rapidly age. So this is big, because when you think about how much money and care and time it takes to look after an aging population especially in north america because in north america we have one-third of our populations in the boom bust and echo so that's the boomer generation one-third of the population started to turn 65 in the year 2000 and we've had over the last 22 years now one-third of our population is over 65 years old So if those people have been drinking enough water, they aged slower and they had less comorbid conditions. That's what the study found out. And it's rather profound. So this is why it's an important people need to drink their water. And yeah, it just plays into how you eat and a whole bunch of other things as well. But yes, you need to drink water if you want to age slower. That's what the study found.
1: How granular did the study get? In other words, did it expressly state how much water is enough water?
4: Yeah, it did, actually. So for women in cups, it was 9.5, I think. And for men, it was 12. So women, 9 to 9.5 cups a day, which is so when you do that number, it's two liters plus another cup, which is 250 milliliters. So it's 2.250 liters. And for men, that was three liters. Okay. So men could do three to three and a half liters a day. And so it's important to note That was irrespective of body mass to begin with. That's the average recommendation for the genders, nine to nine and a half and 12 to 12 and
1: a half. now when we talk about water intake, is that straight liquid intake or does that include all the foods we eat and all the coffee and tea and everything else as well?
4: Yeah, so it does include all the foods we eat, all the coffee and tea, the water that's in fruits and vegetables. That's why I said it's a little bit more complex because the marker that they used was the sodium loads, and they measure that in in millimoles per liter. Right. And so, you know, how much water are you really getting when you eat an orange? It's actually not a lot. Like, it's there, but it's not an appreciable amount. We do need to put fresh, clean water inside of our mouths, and there is one class of liquid – that you can never consider hydrating. And it's not coffee and it's not juice. They can actually be used as as hydrators. It's actually alcohol. Any alcohol is a non-hydrating liquid. Some people will argue with me about that, but there are reasons because alcohol increases inflammation and increases microbial dysbiosis. The liver has to work harder, the brain is hit. So you actually need more water to detoxify alcohol from a biomolecular standpoint. So I never put booze in that category.
1: Okay, you recently wrote a paper on dietary acid load. So how does that fit in with the water and and what we're talking about today?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. And it kind of brings everything together. When you drink water that has an alkalinity associated with it, not an acidity, so pop, soda, for example, has carbonic acid and another thing so it tends to be a higher acid load liquid when you drink the lower acid load liquids or called alkalizing water and that's mineral water actually what we talked about before mm-hmm. that seems to modify your microbiome and make you more metabolically sound your immune system is better able to mount an effective response without over responding and your mind is clearer for reasons that I think have to do with microbial dysbiosis in your gut, but alkalizing water helps to stabilize gut communities and offset 18 comorbid conditions from a high dietary acid load. So if you're drinking alkaline water, you are giving yourself an effective longevity advantage over the long term, it's really important.
1: Okay, so how much mineral water do we need to drink in order to achieve the result?
4: Um, you know, this is where I am a little, you know, I would drink, you know, maybe half a liter every other day or whatever. But it also is it's a budget thing, too, for people. Sure. This mineral water can be a little bit more expensive. But if you have the ability to do so, like I, I will drink two 750 mils of San Pellegrino a week. That's all I spend on it. So that's like 4 or $5 or something like that if I buy it at the grocery store. So that's what I'm drinking, but I eat pretty clean
1: and healthy too. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
4: Absolutely, Damien. Love being on the show. Thanks for asking great questions all the time.
1: That was David Nelson. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer Store? Powered by The Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today.
0: Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson
1: Christy Miller is a home decor expert and entrepreneur. She is the founder and CEO of The Scented Market, a Guelph-based company that is best known for its clean, hand-blended soy wax candles. Welcome to the show, Christy. How are you?
5: Thank you for having me, Jamie. Today's going great.
1: Good. So let's talk a little bit about self-care because I understand you know a little bit about it. What does self-care mean for you?
5: Well, for me, self-care, I try to nail it down to not something that sounds so overwhelming. And I'm a busy mom, and entrepreneur, and I like to take short bursts of self-care throughout the day and throughout the week so that I feel like I've given myself a little bit of time to really sit down and relax, even if it's for five minutes.
1: And... Has that sort of notion, that regimen of sort of micro self-care, has that changed all over COVID? Is that a result of COVID or is that something you've always done?
5: Throughout the pandemic, people were overly stressed and exhausted when a lot of methods of our relaxation, like going to the spa, having a girls weekend away, were shut down. We were all forced to adapt and find ways to bring that spa feeling into the home. So for me, a quick five minutes in the shower with some sugar scrub or even just sitting down and lighting a candle and reading a book really meant a lot to my own mental health and self-care.
1: Okay, so I understand one of the things that you like to use is a shower steamer, what's that? Yeah,
5: shower steamers are so great. I say to people, they're like the bath bomb for shower people. So essentially what it is, is it's a puck and you place it in your shower You turn your water on so that the steam from the water of the shower gets into the air. Once you get into the shower, you can sprinkle a little bit of water on top of the puck. And what that does is activate the puck and throw the steam and the aroma from the puck into the steam from the shower. And it really is the most amazing at home spa like shower experience
1: you're going to have to forgive me because I've got an image in my head and don't be annoyed with me. But when I think of a puck, I think of like the pucks that you sometimes find in (laughs) urinals that is activated by that kind of liquid. I'm presuming the smell is a little bit different, but the science sounds like it's not too far off. Am I right about
0: that?
5: (laughs) I mean, that is definitely an interesting visual (laughs) coming from a male perspective. Um, So Unfortunately I have to say, yes, that's kind of like the basis of it. But it's a little bit prettier shape.
1: I hope Um, so, yeah.
5: And and yeah, it definitely smells a hundred percent better.
1: There you go. (laughs) But you're gonna find it hard to market to men this concept. I'm just I'm just putting that out there. So let's talk a little bit about fragrance and scent for a moment. What's the difference between an essential oil and an oil fragrance?
5: This is a great question because so many people ask us this. An essential oil is derived from a plant and is a plant-based oil. A fragrance oil is a man-made oil. But in my opinion, essential oils are really great and there's lots of information out on the market where you can ingest them or rub them on your skin or use them for therapeutic purposes. In my professional opinion, I'm not crazy about them in candles and in soy wax because the scent throw from the candle that is made with an essential oil is not as strong or it's not as room-filling as I personally prefer. So a candle made with an oil fragrance, number one, it's very important to check with um, the manufacturer that the oil fragrance is phthalate-free and paraben-free. And once you've confirmed that it is, those oils are specifically designed to go into wax and to be burned in a candle, which gives you a much better scent throw in your home, in your room, and just all around in your life and smell a lot stronger than uh, a central oil candle.
1: So are you making your own candles or are you, are you just selling high quality candles that you're sourcing elsewhere?
5: We actually manufacture all of our candles in Guelph, Ontario, Canada. We have a whole entire production team that manufactures all of them in-house. So we do, in fact, our 90% of our candles are made with phthalate-free oil fragrances that give a great throw. But we do offer a line of essential oil candles for that customer that is really particular on using essential oils. And for instance, if I'm having a bath at night as part of my self-care routine, I don't mind having an essential oil candle right there on the side of the bathtub beside me. It's a smaller space. It's a smaller scent throw. And they work really well for me in that instance.
1: Okay. So you mentioned self-care and sort of having the candles near you when you're taking a bath. What other sorts of? of ways can we create that self-care ritual in the home without having to go to a spa and pay like, you know, the huge fees for the for the rub downs, et cetera.
5: Right. Well, in my opinion, right before bed is a really great time to practice self-care and take the time out of your day to do that. You could end your day with some personal time, like uh, reading a book and lighting a candle. It also really helps your body just prepare for the rest of the evening. Ambiance is everything. I also recommend switching off all overhead lights in the evening and at least an hour before you're ready to go to bed, and this shifts a signal in your body that it's just time to unwind and relax and prepare for sleep. Mm -hmm. Another way to enhance your self-care ritual is you could do a quick meditation or breathing exercise. It doesn't have to be long. It can be five minutes. There's so many apps and programs out there now to follow, but even you can do one with a candle. For this, you simply stare at the flame of the candle and breathe in and out, making the inhales as long as the exhales. The act of watching a flame flicker in a candle can be really soothing, create an amazing ambiance, and it can calm your mind and pull your attention to the present moment. Anything else? Candles, of course, are really great for our soft glowing light. The bonus is just a great fragrance. When you smell candles, smell can trigger memories. I love having this conversation with people. Often, you pick up a candle, you smell it, and then immediately your brain triggers a memory. Typically, it's a really great memory, and you are taken back to that moment in time where you have that special someone. The smell of your grandma's lilac bushes when you were little in the summertime. The smell of a cottage that you spent time at. Some of those memories are so great and so rewarding and can make you so happy from
1: the inside out. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
5: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Jamie.
1: Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Sandy Donald, Michelle Fischler, David Nelson, and Christy Miller. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The January-February issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week.